Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Algonquin Power and Utilities Corp. First quarter 2021 earnings webcast and conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Amelia Feng. Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning for our first quarter earnings conference call. Presenting on the call today is Arun Benskada, our President and CEO, and Arthur Kasperzak, our Chief Financial Officer. Also joining us this morning for the question and answer part of the call will be Jeff Norman, our Chief Development Officer, and Johnny Johnston, our Chief Operating Officer. To accompany our earnings call today, we have a supplemental webcast presentation available on our website, algonquinpowerandutilities.com. Our financial statements and management discussion and analysis are also available on the website as well as on CEDAR and EDGAR. Before continuing the call, we would like to remind you that our discussion during the call will include certain forward-looking information, including, but not limited to, our expectations regarding future earnings and capital expenditures. At the end of the call, I will read a notice regarding both forward-looking information and non-GAAP financial measures. Please also refer to our most recent MD&A filed on CEDAR and EDGAR and available on our website for additional important information on these items. On our call this morning, Arun will provide an overview of our Q1 performance, Arthur will follow with the financial results, and then Arun will conclude with an update on our strategic plan for the business. We will then open the lines for questions, and I ask that you restrict your questions to two and then requeue if you have any additional questions to allow others the opportunity to participate. And with that, I'll turn it over to Arun. Thank you, Amelia, uh, and a very good morning to those who've been able to join us on the call and online. I'm pleased to report solid year-over-year growth in our key financial metrics for the first quarter of the year. Q1 adjusted EBITDA was $282.9 million, a 17% increase year over year. And our Q1 adjusted net earnings per share was 20 cents, an increase of 5% compared to last year's 19 cents. You also note that our board has approved a 10% increase in the dividend, beginning with the Q2 dividend payable on July 15 of this year. This increase marks the 11th year of consistently increasing dividend by 10% each year. This demonstrates our collective confidence in and the resiliency of our business model. This dividend increase is supported by the groundwork that has been laid down in 2020 
as we expect to benefit from the addition of approximately 1,400 megawatts of new renewable generation projects that were in construction in 2020. Our additional investment in Atlantica sustainable infrastructure and the acquisition of our interest in the portfolio of Texas coastal wind facilities. On the regulated side, we expect to benefit from the first full year of operations from our Bermuda electric utility, as well as the Estal water utility in Chile, which both closed late last year. Despite the year-over-year -year growth in financial metrics, this quarter's adjusted net earnings fell slightly below our expectations. This is primarily the result of increased costs relating to winter storm Uri and warmer than normal weather in the central region during much of the quarter. With respect to COVID-19, the company's operating results were not materially impacted by the pandemic this quarter. Generally speaking, we have not seen negative impacts from COVID on our loads at this stage as business conditions in the regions we operate in slowly return to normal. Approximately 65% of the company's workforce continues to work remotely and we continue to employ operational measures intended to protect the health and safety of our employees and customers. Our team continues to focus our efforts on Algonquin's three strategic pillars, growth, operational excellence, and sustainability. And we should spend some time on each of these for an update. We operate through two primary businesses, regulated and renewables. Both businesses have multiple levers of growth that support them and gives us high confidence in executing our growth plan. On the regulated side, one lever of growth is our organic investments in improving the safety and reliability of our mission critical infrastructure. Our solid earnings in the quarter demonstrates the ongoing investments we are making to improve service for our customers while managing the affordability of their bills. In our central region, by the end of the quarter, we had completed the installation of 172,000 of the 182,000 AMI or advanced metering infrastructure meters that we are installing. And we are on track to complete installation by the end of May. These meters will not only give our customers much better information to manage their uses, they will allow us to implement time of use tariffs that will further help us to more economically balance supply and demand providing further benefits for our customers. Another lever of growth is acquisitions. And we completed two utility acquisitions in Q4 of 2020, ESAL and Ascendant. 
marked the first full quarter contribution from both acquisitions. The integration of these two utilities into the Algonquin Liberty family has gone well, and they are performing in line with our expectations. Growing and investing in these two utilities is a key initiative. Our balanced approach of operating a local model with central governance continues to be a focus. As with all our previously acquired utilities, we strive to share learnings and best practices among our utilities with the aim of driving consistent improvement in our key performance metrics that drive value for our customers and investors. With New York American Water, we submitted our regulatory application to the New York PSC last year. We are currently going through the settlement process and the hearing date is scheduled for late June. As important work continues to determine the best path forward on resolving issues related to the special franchise tax, we remain confident that Liberty is the best long-term owner of the utility and we continue to expect this transaction to close in 2021. An important lever of growth on the regulated side is our greening of fleet initiatives. We continue to make investments to enhance service for our customers as we accelerate our transition to a clean energy future. I'm pleased to report that we have successfully completed our Midwest Greening the Fleet initiative, as all three projects have been placed in service and have been acquired by the Empire District Electric Company. During the first quarter, our construction team at the Kings Point wind site commissioned the final wind turbine, marking the end of major construction at the three wind sites with a total 600 megawatts. While construction has taken over a year, the planning and development work began in earnest more than four years ago and had many achievements along the way. The 150 megawatt North Fork Ridge wind facility reached full commercial operations in December 2020, while the 150 megawatt Kings Point and 300 megawatt Neoshore Ridge reached full commercial operations in April and early May 2021, respectively. The related closure of the Ashbury coal plant in March 2020 is expected to reduce emissions by nearly 1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide as we work to generate and deliver more cost-effective, diverse, and sustainable energy solutions to our customers and communities. We intend to file our Missouri rate, electric rate case with the commission by the end of May, which will include these wind generation facilities. 2020 marked the company's largest construction program in our history, with approximately 1,600 megawatts of renewable energy projects that were under construction. Of the 1,600 megawatts, nearly 1,400 megawatts 
have reached commercial operations and the remainder are on track to be completed by year end. In addition to the 600 megawatts commissioned on the regulated side, in the renewables business, the 492 megawatt Maverick Creek wind facility in Texas was completed last month, while Alta Vista Solar is nearing completion with over 90% of its 80 megawatts placed in service. The Maverick Creek Wind Facility has long-term power purchase agreements with General Mills and Kimberly Clark. And Alta Vista Solar has a power purchase agreement with Facebook. These two projects showcase our relationships with key CNI customers. The demand from CNI customers who are helping to drive an acceleration towards clean energy is expected to be an attractive source of growth for Algonquin in the coming years. And Algonquin is well positioned to help them advance their own sustainability target. At Investor Day, we spoke about our 3,400 megawatt pipeline of potential new greenfield opportunities, of which at least 500 megawatts includes our partnership with Chevron. And I'm pleased to report that with Chevron, we re recently advanced four Permian projects, three in Texas and one in New Mexico, from the evaluation phase to the development phase under our framework agreement. This means that development activities are moving towards a final investment decision. Scale of the projects will also be defined at this stage. At our investor day, we included two PGM solar projects that were incremental additions in 2020. We have now completed acquisitions of these two Ohio solar development projects with an expected combined capacity of 235 megawatts, with the first 100 megawatt project just beginning construction, demonstrating the ongoing execution of our development portfolio. Moving on now to operational excellence. In a mission-critical industry, safety and reliability are always key areas of focus. Our utility response to Storm Uri is a testament to our employees who work tirelessly under very challenging conditions to keep our customers and communities safe and to maintain our system reliability and resiliency. Staying on the topic of safety, I am pleased that we have passed the impressive milestone of 6 million safety hours without a single lost time injury. Our improved safety scores also translate into financial performance, as this has led to over a 90% reduction in the number of work-related insurance claims over the past two years. Our efforts on work safety are being recognized as the American Gas Association recently awarded Liberty the Safety Achievement Award for employee safety for a third year in a row. 
the customer is at the heart of every good operational excellence strategy. In 2017, we introduced JD Power Survey to benchmark and evaluate our customer experience. As expected, safety and reliability is what customers value most. So it will not surprise you that this has been a key investment focus area for us. I'm pleased to report that in Q1, our JD Power score was up 17 points from the end of 2020 to an overall score of 703, the highest ever for Liberty. However, we know we have a lot more to do and are excited about the new digital experience we will be launching for our customers through our Customer First program. The team is making the final preparations for our first deployment, which starts in Massachusetts next week. And we will be rolling out in a phased approach across the rest of the organization over the next couple of years. And finally, we remain firmly committed to sustainability through the inclusion of environmental, social, and governance values in our broader corporate strategy and day-to-day -day operations. I want to provide a few highlights from this year, including the recent inclusion of Algonquin shares into the S&P Global Clean Energy Index last month. On diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are committed to these values and are continually striving to be better. We are pleased that Algonquin was recently recognized in the Bloomberg Gender Equity Index for the second year in a row and in the Globe and Mail Women Lead Here benchmark. Also, at the end of Q1, we welcome Carol Lehman to our board of directors. Carol brings a wealth of experience in the startup and technology space and our knowledge and background will help strengthen the skills and diversity of our board. With Carol's appointment, the board composition now stands at 40% female, while our executive team is 38% female. These ratios put Algonquin amongst the leaders of diversity in the utility space. I'm also pleased to share that our Sustainalytics ESG ratings improve significantly as we continue our efforts on progressing and advancing our ESG disclosures to our stakeholders. Last year, we released our 2020 Sustainability Report, which not only outlined our progress on our ESG goals, but also provided a higher level of detail around nine priority issues. This year, you'll see us adding incremental ESG-linked goals to our compensation program metrics. Before turning to Arthur, I want to provide an update on Storm Uri and the Midwest Extreme Weather Event, which occurred earlier this year. The severity and nature of this storm was unusual in the level of of impact 
across a very large geography. And temperatures fell to 6 degrees Fahrenheit near our Senate wind facility, lower by 9 degrees compared to the previous lowest recorded temperature in the last 100 years. Also unprecedented was the length of time that market rates were at the cap $9,000 per megawatt hour. Storm Uri presented us and other participants in the region with a significant challenge. We are proud of how our teams responded to minimize the impact on both our customers and operations. The diversity of our fleet and contracting strategies, both within ARCAD and across the rest of our geographically distributed portfolio, also served us well in helping to mitigate the impact of Storm Uri on our results. The most significantly impacted facility was our Senate Wind Facility in North Central Texas, which has a financial hedge in place that imposes an obligation to deliver energy. Due to icing and market disruption during Storm Uri, the facility was unable to produce the energy to satisfy the quantities required to be delivered under the hedge and was forced to settle in the market at elevated pricing. We have asserted force majeure under the hedge contract. In our regulated services group, which comprises approximately 70% of our portfolio, we are diversified by modality and operate in 16 jurisdictions. Despite the extreme weather conditions, overall our businesses perform well from an operational perspective. The utilities did incur incremental commodity costs during a period of record pricing and elevated consumption. Due to the extraordinary nature of these costs, we are working with our regulators to spread these costs over a longer period to make the impacts more manageable for customers. We do not expect any material financial impact to our regulated business from the storm. With that, I'll pass it over to Arthur. We will speak to our first quarter 2021 financial results. Arthur? Thank you, Arun, and good morning, everyone. Our Q1 financial results continue to demonstrate the benefit from Algonquin's diversified and resilient business model, consisting of stable regulated utility services provided across 16 jurisdictions, a portfolio of long-term contracted renewable power assets, and an extensive development pipeline. Our first quarter 2021 consolidated adjusted EBITDA was $282.9 million, which is up approximately 17% from the 242.2 million we reported in the previous year. The regulated services group delivered 204.8 million in operating profit in the current quarter, which compares to 170.2 million in the same quarter last year. The improvement primarily reflects the first full quarter contribution from Belco, our Bermuda Electric Utility, and Asal, our Chilean Water Utility as both acquisitions closed in Q4 of last year, as well as from the contribution of Norfolk Ridge 
the first of our three wind facilities that was placed in service as part of the Greening the Fleet initiative that the room spoke to earlier. Results also benefited from new rates implemented at our Energy North Gas, Peach State Gas, Granite State Electric, and Calpico Electric systems, but were partially offset by higher operating expenses. The regulated services group was also negatively impacted by warmer than usual weather in the central region for the majority of the first quarter. The Renewable Energy Group reported Q1 divisional operating profit of 96.3 million, which compares to 88.4 million in the same quarter last year. The increase is primarily due to the addition of the Sugar Creek and Maverick Creek wind facilities, the Great Bay 2 solar facility, and the Texas Coastal Wind Portfolio. This was partially offset by increased costs incurred at the Maverick Creek and incremental basis costs at the Texas Wind Portfolio both related to the extreme weather experienced during February. The results also include the impact of the market, the results do not include the impact of the market disruption related to storm worry on Senate wind facilities. The facility was forced to settle under its financial hedge at highly elevated prices as a result of extended disruption in the ERCOT electricity market and extreme icing conditions which impacted the operation. We view this impact as unusual and not reflective of the ongoing operations. Our Q1 adjusted net earnings per share came in at 20 cents, which is up 5% from last year. Despite the increase, the results were slightly below our expectations. Again, primarily due to the on average warmer than expected weather conditions experienced during the quarter and in our regulator group, as well as the incremental costs partially related to storm earnings. Moving on to provide some updates on our financing activities and progress on our 2021 capital plan. As you heard me say before, we are highly committed to maintaining our triple B flat capital, capital structure, which we believe optimizes our cost of capital, benefiting shareholders and retaining our competitive position. The benefits of, of this balance sheet discipline were demonstrated this quarter as the Renewable Energy Group issued its fifth bond under its well-established financing platform raising Canadian $400 million at a low coupon of 2.85% for 10 years. This was also the second bond that was qualified as green by, by the group and the third by the company, showcasing our ongoing commitment to environmental and sustainability targets. During the quarter, Algonquin re-established its ATM program, allowing for cost-effective and opportunistic issuance of our common stockage. Since re-establishment of the program last year, we have issued uh, 11.2 million of our bonding shares for a total proceeds of 178 million. With respect to our capital plan, during the quarter, Avalpa deployed approximately 1.9 billion of capital pertaining to previously discussed initiatives. The Renewable Energy Group completed the buyout of the Maverick Creek and Sugar Creek wind facilities from our joint venture partners, as well as closed the acquisition of three of the four Texas coastal wind projects from RWE. The Regulated Services Group acquired from our joint venture partner the North Fork Wick Project, which is part of our Gleaning the Defeat Initiative. I'm glad to say that subsequent to the quarter, we completed the acquisition of the remaining two projects, the Kings Point and the Osho Ridge, uh, Ridge Wind Facilities. Also subsequent to the quarter, we completed the acquisition of the 80-megawatt Alta Vista Solar Project from our JV partner. The preponderance of this financing, the runs of the financing for these initiatives is being funded by tax equity investors. 
A Vulcan balance sheet remains strong. With approximately 1.5 billion of available liquidity at the end of the quarter, we could <clears throat> we continue to monitor the debt and equity capital markets and expect to fulfill our remaining capital needs for the year through a combination of various debt and equity or equity-like instruments to maintain our target capital structure. Before turning things over to Arun, I'd like to provide a brief update on our 2021 guidance. As discussed, we have already delivered on our plan of adding approximately 1,400 megawatts of new renewable generation capacity, which will benefit 2021 results. In addition, we expect to benefit from the first full year of operations of Delco and Asal and the Texas Coastal Wind Portfolio. Excluding the impact of the market disruption on the Senate Wind Facility that I discussed earlier, we expect our 2021 adjusted net earnings per share to be within the range of 71 to 76 cents as communicated previously. With that, I will now hand it back to Arun to outline our growth plans. Thank you, Arthur. Before we close out our pre prepared comments this morning, I want to give an update on our growth initiatives. With society and, and economies working hard to minimize carbon emissions, and many countries coalescing around a net zero carbon by 2050 goal, Algonquin's regulated and renewables businesses are very well positioned to contribute to and benefit from this decarbonization transition. We remain encouraged by the Biden administration's focus on clean energy in their infrastructure bill and the potential for expanded investment opportunities. Several climate bills are pending in the House and Senate, and we see exciting potential opportunities in this legislation and the administration's commitment to a clean energy economy. The potential extension of ITC and PTC credits would benefit our 3,400 megawatt pipeline of greenfield opportunities. Looking at long-term growth, our 9.4 billion five-year investment plan from 2021 to 2025 has identified projects that make up the entire $9.4 billion, with most of them now in operation, under construction, or in advanced stages of development. This core $9.4 billion investment plan does not include any further M&A beyond previously announced transactions or any success from our 3,400 megawatt pipeline of greenfield opportunities. We have multiple levers of growth across our two businesses that I've spoken throughout today's call, which gives me further confidence on our ability to execute and deliver on our five-year investment and growth plan. Before we open the lines for the question and answer period, we remain very excited about Algonquin's businesses and prospects. We welcome you to hear more at our upcoming annual general meeting. Similar to last year, and given the protocols related to the ongoing pandemic, we will be hosting our AGM virtually this year. We welcome your participation on June 3rd at 4 p.m. Eastern. In closing, 2021 has been a very productive start to the year as we continue to execute 
and deliver on the company's largest construction program in its history, with nearly 1,400 megawatts of the 1,600 megawatts already placed in service. Our three strategic pillars of operational excellence, growth, and sustainability will be a key foundation as we continue to build the business and deliver steady earnings and dividend growth, creating long-term shareholder value. With that, I will turn the call over to the operator for any questions from those on the line. Thank you. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Our first question comes from Nelson Ng with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Great, thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, my first question just relates to uh, the uh, Vestas blade manufacturing area. So can you just give a bit more color in terms of, I think there were like 30, sorry, 83 turbines that were impacted. Like did, did you have to like shut all of those turbines down um, or do they still, can they still partly operate? And then can you just give more color in terms of um, what this financial impact is and whether, um, uh, the downtime in Q1 and through through the rest of this year would be covered by by Vestas. Nelson, uh, good morning. Um, uh, with me uh, and Arthur this uh, this morning, I, I also have uh, uh, Johnny Johnson, our uh, chief operating officer, and uh, Jeff Norman, our uh, Norman, our chief development officer. And I think uh, uh, Johnny will uh, respond to that question. Johnny. Yeah, good morning, Nelson. Um, probably the most important uh, part of the question is, uh, despite the impact on the turbines, we don't expect there to be a financial impact that we've got availability guarantees as part of uh, the turbine supply agreements, and so that's going to sort of cover the financial aspects. I think from an operational perspective, um, the, the impact of sites of Maverick and Sugar, we have plans in place and are expecting uh, the turbines to be up and running again uh, before the end of the year. Okay. Um, are you able to give a bit more color in terms of what the uh, like what needed to be done with the uh, with the blades? Um, so uh, we, we've, we're we're taking a mixed approach. So in some instances we're just replacing them, uh, and in others we're uh, we're effectively going through a repair process to uh, um, uh, have them operational. Um, it is, I think you're aware this is a, a safety related issue. So until uh, blades are either replaced or repaired. 
uh, the turbines are uh, out of operation. Okay, thanks. Um, and then my, my second question just relates to uh, the, the uh, Senate facility and the uh, force majeure de declaration. Um, so I, I presume the counterparty hasn't, I, I guess, can you give some color as to whether the counterparty has accepted the force majeure declaration? I, I presume they, they would, wouldn't have, but um, that could just be their default response. But were there, uh, were the um, hedges settled and like is cash out the door and you're looking to get some back or, or is it still pending? So, uh, Nelson, thanks. There seems to be a lot of static on the line for some reason. Uh, so to, to, to respond to your question, uh, you know, uh, we have obviously uh, uh, submitted our force majeure uh, to, to the counterparty. Uh, and obviously, since this may be uh, you know, turning into a dispute or potential litigation, uh, there's only so much I, I, I can talk about. Uh, but uh, in, in any case, what we have uh, earlier uh, talked about is a maximum $45 to $55 million uh, of exposure, and any mitigation would obviously uh, reduce that, that uh, level of exposure. Okay, that, that's great. I'll get back in with you. Our next question comes from Julian DeMolin-Smith with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Your line is open. <clears throat> hey, good morning, team. Can you hear me? Loud and clear, Julian. Good morning. How are you? Hey, excellent. Thank you so much. Listen, I, I suppose, uh, let me start with a high-level question for you. Um, obviously, we've seen some M&A of way to cross the space um, at, at a perhaps more elevated um, valuation than perhaps was uh, perceived um, coming into the year, um, especially for gas utilities. Uh, how, how do you think about your own positioning for, for M&A at this point in, in light of that? And I'm thinking specifically here of Centerpoint's gas LBC deal, but uh, and any open comments there? I know you, you once again at least put it on the table as being upside, but curious on your, your latest perspectives here. Are you, are, you, are you still a buyer, maybe said differently? And, uh, Julian, is your question particularly only for gas uh, utilities, or is it a general No, broadly. Certainly the observation, okay. at least the empirical ones, are on gas, but more broadly. Sure. So, so on, on a broader uh, uh, context, uh, Julian, right, you are very aware that you know, acquisition is something, one of our big uh, growth levers, and... Uh, I believe so. For the, in the last 20 years, we've in fact completed exactly 20 uh, utility acquisitions, uh, and we're always in the mix when there's uh, you know discussions around M&A. Uh, to specifically respond to your question, yes, uh, we have seen elevated uh, uh, pricing, uh, and uh, but again, that that uh, I, I think that there there is a lot of uh, capital. Uh, out there right now chasing uh, uh, chasing targets, so I, I think it, it remains a fairly frothy market. Uh, uh, in respect to your other question around gas LDCs, uh, you know we are, as you know, in all three uh, sectors, uh, the modalities: uh, water, electric, and gas. And uh, we do look at the potential acquisition across all three modalities, uh, but on the gas side. Uh, we will be disciplined in terms of making sure that it meets our uh, sustainability uh, goals as well. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, Oh, go for it. No, no, go ahead. Great. No, I was going to ask you a little bit more detailed question as you're thinking about the latest impacts in the the Biden tax efforts here. How are you thinking about that specifically to your company? I I bet there's a lot of different uh, puts and takes here. How would you frame the tax side as well as obviously the the other perhaps more beneficial sides on on especially direct pay, et cetera? Julian, good morning. So on the tax side, I mean, in general, the the comment is, I mean, it's obviously positive for the renewables industry in terms of everything that's that's proposed uh, both in the the Biden and some some of the other proposals that are out there as well. You know, on the uh, tax rate side, you know, we've talked about that in in the past. Uh, I mean, basically on the tax rate, it's a a flow-through for for utilities, so so it's basically a a neutral and and probably a little bit of uh, maybe a slight negative from the – from the renewable side of the business, but but, uh, but in general, it's basically uh, neutral from a tax rate perspective. You know, some of the other proposals that are floating out there, but that, that, that's, that's way too early uh, to tell. We're, we're monitoring it, uh, and, and we'll see what, what, uh, which one of them actually prevails. Jeff, uh, you might want to comment also on the uh, some of the tax proposals and how they uh, could potentially benefit us as well on, on the growth. <laughs> Yeah, no, happy to. And, and so definitely a, a, a ton of excitement in, in the industry uh, about uh, the, the American jobs plan, uh, in particular in terms of the ITC, PTC extension for potentially five years, and also the extension of that to potentially impact uh, uh, storage without generation having to be co-located. So although it's a little early to tell, it, it's certainly exciting and exciting. And help us think there's going to be positive developments that do make it through into the legislation. Got it. All right, fair enough, guys. I'll leave it there. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Julian. Our next question comes from Rupert Murr with National Bank. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Rupert. If I could start with a housekeeping question for Arthur. Can you remind us how much of a, uh, a financial benefit do you expect to see from the 600 megawatts of, of wind you'll have in the regulated utility? And, and maybe you can give us a little a color on, on the uh, EBITDA run rate changes you might see in, in Q2 and, and Q3 relative to Q1 from those assets. Hey, Rupert, good morning. Yeah, I mean, most, most of the benefit from the uh, 600 megawatts of, of generation uh, that actually is getting put in, will be through basically our, our PISA adjustments that, that, that will be put in place in, as we look to get these projects uh, approved through, uh, through rates over, uh, over the next, uh, next year or so. Okay. Are you able to, to quantify what we could see for the, uh, the remainder of the year with the, uh, the PISA adjustments? Um, can, I, can I get back to you on that one? I can provide you sure. a little bit more uh, quantification. Okay. Okay. Very good. And then, uh, secondly, then more of a, a high-level uh, question on organic growth. Uh, maybe, maybe a question for Jeff. So you've come through this this big growth spurt, uh, 1,600 megawatts. Can you give us a little more color on what we can anticipate the next couple of years, and, and what pace of growth can we expect to come from from your organic development? I know you've got a, a 3,400 megawatt pipeline, and we had some. 
uh, some goals laid out in the investor day. Uh, can you ex- can you exceed the targets in the investor day, or you know, should we look at the investor day as as a good uh, proxy for for what we can expect next? Well, actually, maybe turning before turning it over to Jeff, the, the first thing I will say is that. You know, we are very confident uh, in uh, meeting uh, the $9.4 billion five-year plan. Like I said in my prepared remarks, uh, it is very front-end loaded, uh, and many of those projects are actually already uh, in commercial operations uh, already. Uh, so uh, that g- gives us high confidence. And again, as we said in Investor Day and, and after, uh, that $9.4 billion program does not include the 3,400-megawatt greenfield pipeline or any incremental M&A activity. So we are confident in meeting and potentially exceeding that $9.4 billion capital plan. But, uh, Jeff, uh, do you want to add more color? Yeah, certainly. And, and Rupert, you, you mentioned the 3,400-gigawatt uh, uh, or megawatt pipeline and we continue to uh, advance. We see opportunity uh, with a number of CNI customers who have set sustainability targets and renewable targets that uh, um, um, need to be contracted to 23, 24, 25. And if you look back at that 9.4 billion pipeline, it was fairly light on renewable in that section. And so we don't have anything that we can announce at this time, but the development team is certainly focused on originating projects to populate that part of the environment right for doing that. Great. Thanks for the call. I'll, I'll leave it there. As a reminder, callers, please mute your line when listening to the answer after you have asked your question. Our next question comes from David Kizala with Raymond James. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, my first question here, just on um, on your on your capital plan, and appreciate the comments uh, around uh, the growth opportunities over and above it. I'm curious on the on the regulated side of things. Now that the initial round of green the fleet has has happened, um, how, how do you see things developing on the regulated side in the in the outer years of your capex plan uh, when when the capex spend is a bit lower than the pace today? So, uh, David, very good morning to you. Uh, the, the first thing I, I will say is that in, on the regulated side of the business as well, you know, we do have multiple levers, right? And so uh, when you look at uh, some of the levers on the regulated side, the biggest one, in fact, is organic growth. And when we say organic growth, that refers to more our regular uh, improvements in, in, in infrastructure, uh, you know, leading to better safety and reliability and, and security, right? And that is really the bulk uh, of, of that. Uh, then, the, then the other one is obviously is some of the some of the MNA, and uh, we have uh, New York American Water in there. And I think the third one we're referring to is our greening the fleet. And you know, I'm really proud of the team to say that uh, that all of the 600 megawatts. Uh, that was part of that uh, Greening the Fleet initiative are now uh, fully commercial and online. It is a lot of work uh, from, from a lot of people on the teams uh, to get that uh, on. And as part of that, we also closed down our Ashbury 200-megawatt coal facility uh, So and reducing our carbon intensity by uh, almost a million tons a year. 
now the greening of fleet initiative is something that is uh, somewhat unique to us, I believe. We are carrying that out in our Calpico uh, utility as well. Uh, and uh, we will be looking at uh, you know, places like Bermuda and others uh, for uh, some of those other uh, greening the fleet initiatives as well. Does that answer your question, David? It, it does, absolutely. Thanks for that, Arun. And then maybe just one other question for me. Um, looking at the Missouri rate case, um, I'm curious if you'll look to revisit uh, certain items like uh, like revenue decoupling, or, or do you prefer to just go forward with the PISA accounting that you have in place now? Let me turn that over to Johnny. Yeah, um, David, uh, in the way that we effectively um, uh, opted to go down the, the PISA route following the, the last rate case uh, means that we're, we're with that through uh, certainly until 2023. Uh, there's been an opportunity for that to potentially be extended through, I think, 2028. Uh, and so uh, for now, revenue decoupling uh, is uh, something that, that we'll have to wait uh, in Missouri, but certainly uh, making the most of the the PISA legislation when you think about some of the investments we've been making through the central region in the last uh, few months. Excellent. Thank you for that. I'll get back in the queue. Our next question comes from Stephen Bird with Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for the uh, really thorough ESG update at the, uh, the beginning. Uh, it was really helpful to kind of go through through everything. Um, a lot has been covered. I wanted to perhaps go back to uh, the potential for U.S. tax reform and focus a little bit more specifically on uh, some corporate tax elements, uh, the impact uh, to you all of uh, higher corporate tax rates, potential for things like minimum taxes, guilty, et cetera, those sorts of dynamics. Would you mind just talking in a little more depth about those sort of uh, corporate taxation elements and the impact to you? Right. Sure. Uh, so on, on the tax rate, uh, as I mentioned in my previous, uh, uh, in the previous question, it's, it's basically a pass-through on the regulated side. Maybe it's a slight like, negative on the, uh, on the re renewable side. But I mean, as we look at some of the other noise that, that is getting uh, proposed there, whether it's the uh, shield or uh, you know, looking at whether beef remains or, or some of all the other proposals, but it's really early to tell which one is, is going to uh, to wait out how they're going to interact with, with, uh, with between themselves, whether it be the minimum tax will be put in and the beat will be repealed, what's going to be creditable that gets beat. So it, it really, really is too early to, to make a determination in terms of uh, where um, what the impacts will be. I'll say on the guilty, we're, we're generally not uh, not impacted by any of the guilty proposals that have been put forth, but but everything else we, we continue to uh, to watch closely. That's fair. We have a lot to to figure out in terms of what this is going to really look like. Um, and then maybe uh, just one other for me on renewables growth. There, you know, you gave a, a thorough update. There've been a number of questions around that. When you think about kind of the the biggest limiting factors or sort of risks that you think about when with respect to renewables growth, curious just whether that's supply chain, availability financing, tax equity, whatever it might be. How do you kind of see, I mean, we're obviously in a very supportive environment overall, so uh, I completely respect that. I'm just sort of trying to think about, we often get asked about, um, you know, some practical issues in growth, whether it's a shortage of 
people, a shortage of equipment, or increased costs, just any other color you might be able to provide on sort of what you see as some of the limiting factors. Jeff, you want to take that? Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm happy to. And, and Stephen, I, I think it, it's a great question because I think that excitement obviously comes with the downside. And I'd say a, a couple of the stress points uh, would be, one, there probably will be a, 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 a battle for talent and, and resources, and mm -hmm. we do see our location with a lot of development activities here in, in, in Oakville as being a, a strategic advantage, and we're able to build them and maintain a, a good team, but we need to be cognizant of that team being very attractive to others and to keep building. Uh, that would be one. The, the other one is on interconnection. Uh, there is such demand and, and, and need for renewable build-out in the key markets, and, and it's always been important, but it's going to be even more important over the coming months. That's really yeah, important. And, and so, Stephen, oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's really the pace, right? I mean, uh, what I like to point out is that uh, in, in, the, in, the, in 2020, which was uh, uh, not with the most friendly uh, in a poor renewables administration, was where we saw our largest you know, construction project in our uh, in our pipeline history in our history, right? Of 1,600 megawatts. So we're obviously very excited now uh, of that all of the tailwinds we're seeing from, from this uh, uh, Biden administration, and and it's really that as the, with, with the scaling, the challenges are going to be across the board in terms of you know supply chain, in terms of permitting. Uh, speed in terms of the interconnection uh, access, how fast that can uh, move. So it, it's really uh, going to be felt throughout uh, the, the different uh, parts of the value chain. But again, uh, we have been very good at managing that, even through COVID last year, and even through uh, that that you know largest you know, construction period in our history. So you know we we're, we're confident that we're going to be able to manage our way through. No, that's a fair point, and these kinds of issues strike me as high-class problems, so uh, no, point well taken. <laughs> um, exactly right. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. That's all I had. Thanks. Thank you, Stephen. Our next question comes from Sean Stewart with PD Securities. Your line is now open. Thanks. Good morning, guys. Um, just a couple of questions. Uh, Arthur, wondering, following up on the last question, can you speak specifically to tax equity availability, how that's changed uh, in, in recent months, if at all? And uh, Arun, your, your predecessor used to talk about Algonquin becoming its own tax equity partner once uh, you hit that, that taxable position. Any, any thoughts on that horizon uh, and, and uh, how that impacts your, your funding considerations? Yeah. Uh, good morning, Sean. Um, so in terms of tax equity availability, we have not seen a constraint from, from our, on our side. I mean, and that, that part of it probably speaks to the fact that uh, look, we have well-established relationships, uh, strong balance sheets, and, and uh, so forth from what we've seen. Tax equity is there uh, for good projects. And to some extent, I would also say the tax equity market is, uh, to some instances, uh, even uh, lightening up or, or looking at uh, loosening some of their rules, whether it be uh, continuous efforts, uh, looking at uh, uh, potentially financing those types of projects and so forth. So tax equity is there, and I think it continues to be there for, uh, for strong sponsors. 
So for, for the second part of your question, uh, with respect to uh, self-monetizing tax attributes, look, that, that, that's something that uh, continues to be on the table. And, and uh, with respect to uh, you know even some of the tax changes that that, that are being out there, it's, it's always beneficial to be a, a company that that's able to generate uh, its own tax attributes and be able to use it uh, to offset its income intrinsically. So, so for, for us, that continues to uh, to be a, an option, uh, and uh, you know, and we also look at some some of the other things that are out there. With, you know, obviously direct pay of it, and whatever uh, fits for some of our projects as well. So, all in all, I think positive developments in this area. Thanks for that, Arthur. Um, you get you gave a little bit of an update, uh, Arun, with respect to New York American Water. Um, can you just review the hearings that are that are upcoming and an update on on your comfort closing that acquisition in advance of the state uh, completing its review um, with respect to the, the municipal ownership potential? Um, any updated thoughts there? Sure. And, and look, I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, you know political noise uh, around this, but at the end of the day, uh, we're really focused on two things, right? Uh, the first is uh, we continue to believe that we're the best owners and operators of uh, uh, New York American Water, and so we are focused very much on closing that transaction. And second of all, uh, there is something unique uh, in uh, New York uh, with regard to the special franchise tax, which is a burden uh, on New York American Water's customers. And we've been working with different parties to try to see and make that much more equitable uh, for our customers, right? So beyond that, really our discussions with the, with the commission have continued as usual. Uh, we have now hearings uh, slated for, for a late June. Uh, that, that, that's the target currently. And in the midst of that, there's been a lot of other activity on both the legislative front around municipalization studies and you know, uh, things of the sort. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think what is also very important to focus on is that the largest uh, uh, base of customer is, is, is in Hempstead. And the, the town of Hempstead has come out very strongly uh, against municipalization. So I think with all of that, we do continue to have a uh, high degree of uh, confidence in being able to close out this uh, transaction. Johnny, Thanks. is there anything you want to add to that? I think you covered it well, Arun. That's, uh, that's great detail. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. My next question comes from Richard Sunderland with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Just two questions on uh, Missouri here. Um, curious for the first one, um, if you could provide more color around the proposed um, recovery timing and bill impact of the um, incremental commodity costs out of uh, the February weather. Sure, Johnny. Yeah, good morning, uh, Richard. Um, so uh, the our normal process, uh, we have a fuel adjustment clause where our fuel costs get passed back uh, over a six-month period where there's a, a delta to, to norm, normality uh, because of the materiality uh, of the uh, the impact of Storm Uri on, on energy costs. I think if we were to pass those straight through in the normal fashion, it would have raised our customer bills uh, probably
probably north of 60% um, as a result. And, and clearly that would have been a, a huge burden for them to pay. So uh, we have filed with the Commission to uh, have those uh, picked up over a longer period of time and to address that through our upcoming rate case. So there'll be more to come, but clearly our ambition here is to try and find a uh, the right balance between uh, phasing those costs out, uh, covering our costs of uh, managing that, but making it manageable for our customers as we go through that. So uh, there's more conversations to be had with uh, our regulator and our stakeholders in terms of the exact timings, um, but that's sort of where we are in the process. Got it. Thank you for the color there. And then um, separately around the um, the Miosha Wind facility, could you speak to the um, you know the network upgrades required uh, for that facility, and maybe just provide a little bit more color around the performance there, um, including if there are any uh, kind of performance obligations um, owed around uh, you know those uh, wind farms in general. Sure. Hi, Richard. It's Jeff. I'm happy to take that question. And you're referring to the, the DIFAS 2 results, which came out and, and impacting uh, North Park Ridge, Kings Point, and Neosho. I would say that we're quite pleased that for uh, Kings Point and North Park Ridge, that those confirmed that there were no upgrades. For Neosho, it is an iterative process. They are indicating that there is a need to upgrade about 18 miles of line. Uh, but we are currently generating under our interim interconnection agreement uh, and, uh, and operating the facility. We expect to continue doing that uh, moving forward. And we know that there are some errors in DICE's report that, uh, that was pointed out and that we'll continue to iterate moving forward and expect it to be resolved. In terms of, uh, in terms of uh, financing, That's great. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Our next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Your line is open. Yep. Morning, everyone. Uh, two questions for me. First one, just on the Chevron agreement moving from evaluation to development. Can you just maybe add a little bit more color on kind of the potential timelines we can see on, on those projects in the Permian? And then also just given you know, how, how are these agreements structured? Do you have a kind of set going in price or a targeted return that you both agree with, just given the fact that, uh, you know, it does seem like a number of these projects are, are still a little uh, in flex? Sure. So let, let me uh, start out, and I'll probably turn it to Jeff. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of context, uh, Rob, so first of all, uh, we signed that framework agreement with Chevron just uh, last year in July, and it was for over 500 megawatts, right? Uh, and so uh, that was just a framework agreement that really uh, governs our partnership, you know, who develops what, who takes the lead on what, all those kinds of uh, details around our, our, our framework agreement, right? And so now, uh, ever since that time, we have uh, been scoping each of their facilities uh, and looking at what is the tech best technology, what is the best size, uh, all of those kind of things, running the numbers, and now we've really moved from that first phase to much more of a development phase because we now have 
you know, much higher level of confidence that on these four sites, we're going to be able to uh, come to an agreement on all things like pricing and all those kinds of things. Uh, at, at the end of the day, obviously, you know, both parties need to be able to have confidence that, you know, uh, the project we're doing meets both uh, the hurdles and other uh, requirements on both sides. Uh, and that's what we're working towards. Uh, we are also working towards uh, what we're calling in that agreement a final investment decision, uh, which would then start uh, construction on these projects. And we're hoping to get to that you know, sometime towards uh, the, the end of the year or so, or so time frame. Uh, Jeff, anything you can, uh, any further color on that? I, I think you covered uh, everything except maybe one item, which is just a, a little bit of color on, on the discussions in terms of returns. And so there's certainly been exchange of the expected cost of the facilities and, and the returns that would be required makes sense for both parties. And so those will be confirmed through the final investment decision, but the discussions around those have gone well. All right. Thank you. Appreciate the color. And, and, then just and, ju and, and just to give you some, some more comfort around that, I mean, uh, we've even started procurement activities, right? Uh, in order to safeguard, uh, safe harbor, and those kinds of elements. So, you know, we, we remain, both sides remain uh, uh, you know, fairly confident right. that we're going to be able to execute on that uh, framework agreement. Okay. And then maybe just a follow-up question, just in terms of kind of, you know, uh, capital at the door for Q1. You know, the MBNA says that you've, you know, you've done $1.9 billion of CapEx so far this year. Uh, cash flow statement's quite a bit below that. You know, as we look through the rest of the year, you know, how are you thinking about your cash requirements uh, to fund uh, the rest of the capital plan to get to you to that four to four and a half billion dollars? Um, as well as, you know, is there a timing mismatch here, or is it mainly just related to um, the accounting treatment and tax equity? Thank you. Good morning, Rob. So, so uh, I was, uh, the simple answer is it's, a, it's an accounting treatment, and the, the real uh, the real reason is how these, these investments actually. Have been held prior to uh, to being bought out. We held them as uh, as joint venture. Uh, we we're joint venture partners in these investments. So, so buying these out, they become a, a, an equity buyout. Uh, as, uh, so, so what we're bringing on to uh, our balance sheet through the cash flow statement is really the, the net investment that that, uh, that comes in. So there, these these projects uh, have some construction financing that uh, that was uh, brought on on a net basis, and uh, we will look to uh, repay that construction financing to our long-term bond platforms and, uh, and overall in accordance with the capital structure. I know that, that, that that's responsive or helpful. That was. Thank you. Our next question comes from Andrew Kosky with our credit suite. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning, and uh, thanks for squeezing me in. Uh, maybe two related questions. You know, when you look at the construction program you did on the renewable side in the last little while, you know, what do you do for an encore, and what were the lessons learned from the program? Great question, Andrew. I'm going to pass it over to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it is a great question. It is how, how do you uh, how do you exceed the, the 1600 megawatts and and all the 2020 with COVID? Uh, hopefully, we will not have to repeat a COVID construction year of, of that magnitude. But I I do think there's a great deal of opportunity going into this 22, 23, 24, uh, just when you look at the CNI customers of the demand. And, and you know, we've already seen a, a push up in CNI PPA rates 
uh, as, as that demand starts to uh, starts to deal with the, the supply of product out there to, to meet it. So I think it's it's going to be pretty exciting going forward, but it won't be as exciting as 2020. Yeah, but, a bit more Exactly, and I, I think it's really that combination of our uh, CNI strategy coupled with our 3,400 megawatt uh, uh, greenfield pipeline, and I think that that's what we're really excited about. And, and then maybe just a follow-up to that: um, How do you think about pipeline replenishment? And you know, clearly in the in the year to date, there's been a lot of turmoil as far as market prices go and renewable stocks. So what are you seeing on? Pipeline replenishment opportunities, in particular among, say, private developers. Uh, you know, if you could give us color on that, that'd be great. Yeah, so there there has been a consolidation of some of the larger developers, which are pushing forward wind projects. So we think it's important in our 3,400 megawatts and, and, and to want to grow that 3,400 megawatts, and two to make sure that there's a focus on wind uh, because there's a, a smaller subset of developers to acquire mid and late stage projects from. On the solar side, we're actually still seeing quite a robust pipeline of, of opportunities. And so uh, I think going forward on solar, we'll probably see more uh, acquisition and greenfield. Uh, and on wind, it'll be slightly skewed towards greenfield uh, from, from acquisition. Okay. Thank you. Very helpful. Thanks, Andrew. Our next question comes from Najee Baidun with IA Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, good morning. Appreciate it. Uh, a bit over time, but just a couple of quick questions. Um, can you just remind us for your 2021 guidance, how much is baked in for the New York American Water Acquisition? Hey, good, good morning, Najee. So, so when we did put our guidance uh, back in Investor Day, we uh, we did provide a range of guidance and uh, some assumptions with respect to that guidance. So with respect to uh, our assumptions, we did, uh, we did factor in that uh, on the upper range, we would, uh, we would consider a closing of near American water that, uh, that happens uh, around the third quarter or so. And, uh, and on the lower range, one of the factors was, uh, was the later in the year closing. Now, that was one of the only assumptions, so I wouldn't read into that as the entire uh, as the entire range difference. I mean, we had other things such as uh, we had assumed uh, on the low end uh, COVID impact similar to, uh, to this year, uh, and, uh, and, and it certainly obviously hasn't taken place. So, so there's, there's, there's various assumptions that do go into that range. Okay, I appreciate that, Arthur. And just uh, another quick question, more on sustainability um, and ESG. I get now with Ashbury closed down and all the ongoing renewable projects, you're, you're you know, well on your way to achieving a 75 renewables target by 2023. I get to talk about CNI, Appetite for Clean Energy, um, which is being a tailwind for growth. I'm wondering about your own targets. Maybe you can talk to us about potentially, if you think about revising that target going forward and what the implications would mean uh, in terms of new renewable build-up. Yeah, Najee, thanks. Uh, a great question. I mean, sustainability is one of our three pillars. Uh, we certainly uh, focus on that a lot. And, and just to tell you, I mean, we are already starting from a very good base, right? I mean, our carbon intensity, when you look at that per dollar of revenue, is at 0 0.0017, uh, which is well among the lowest uh, among our peers uh, in the industry. Uh, and 
uh, even when you look at uh, the fact that you know when we acquired Empire District that came up with, with some thermal assets, just since 2017 to now, we have reduced that carbon intensity by 31 percent, right? And so some of the other goals we have are, you know, that 75 percent renewables by 2023, which is a pretty aggressive goal, but we are confident in meeting that. Uh, and as we start now uh, uh, meeting some of the goals that we had set out in past years, targeted towards 2023, we are internally working towards, okay, uh, what is, are the next set of goals? So, so uh, you know, keep your lines open. I mean, we, we, we are working on those, and we will be coming out with more uh, goals as we continue to meet and exceed uh, our, our current set of uh, ESG goals. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Uh, look forward to hearing more about that. Absolutely. There are no further questions in queue at this time. I'll turn the call over to Arun Vinskoda for closing comments. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for all of the questions. Thank you for joining uh, the, the uh, investor call. Again, we remain extremely excited about uh, uh, the Algonquin platform and all of the opportunities in front of us. And with that, I'll turn it over to Amelia for uh, the, the disclaimers. Thanks for joining us today. Our discussion during this call contains certain forward-looking information, including but not limited to our expectations regarding earnings, capital expenditures, and commercial operations. This forward-looking information is based on certain assumptions, including those described in our most recent MDNA, filed on CEDAR and EGAR, and available on our website, and is subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from historical results or results anticipated by the forward-looking information. Forward-looking information provided during this call speaks only as of the date of this call and is based on the plans, beliefs, estimates, projections, expectations, opinions, and assumptions of management as of today's date. There can be no assurance that forward-looking information will prove to be accurate, and you should not place undue reliance on forward-looking information. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking information or to explain any material difference between subsequent actual events and such forward-looking information, except as required by applicable law. In addition, during the course of this call, we may have referred to certain non-GAAP financial measures, including but not limited to adjusted net earnings, adjusted net earnings per share, or adjusted net EPS, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted funds from operations, and divisional operating profits. There is no standardized measure of such non-GAAP financial measures, and consequently, APOC's method of calculating these measures may differ from methods used by other companies and therefore may not be comparable to similar measures presented by other companies. For more information about both forward-looking information and non-GAAP financial measures, including a reconciliation of non-GAAP measures to the corresponding GAAP measures, please refer to our most recent MDNA filed on CEDAR in Canada and EDGAR in the United States and available on our website. And that concludes our call. Thank you for joining us. That concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.